Hey, before we get into this morning's message, I want to share with you what's happening uh, over the next several Sundays here at Restoration Church. Give you a little preview of what's uh, taking place over the next several Sundays. So next Sunday is part two of this morning's message on why Jesus. Uh, so next week, we're going to continue the conversation that we begin uh, today as discovering why Jesus is this, this monumental figure in history. And then the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we're beginning our Christmas series titled, The Boy Who Changed the World. Now, in some ways, it's really a continuation of the conversation that we are going to begin today and continue next week. And we're going to look at how Jesus influenced and impacted the world that we live in. What would the world be like if Jesus of Nazareth never walked upon it? How have things changed because of this figure in history? What is different now in the 21st century because this guy who walked upon the earth 2,000 years ago actually walked upon the earth. And I think we're going to discover that the world would look like a very, very different place. Or we're going to hypothesize about what the world might have looked like if Jesus had never walked upon it. So for four weeks, we're going to discuss exactly how this boy in particular changed the world. Now this is a perfect uh, series to invite family and friends to. It's a perfect series to invite family and friends to. You may be here this morning because you were invited by someone, and if that's the case, we welcome you. We are excited that you are here at Restoration Church. Um, we love you already. I don't even know who you are, but I already love you. I hope you know that. Uh, full of love in this place, and so we welcome you here. Did you know that maybe, and, uh, and maybe this is true of you, but seven out of eight people who have never came to church before, come to church before, um, were never invited to be at church? And all this really tells us is that most people, unless there's some major crisis in their life, are not just going to step foot into a church. They're not just going to be naturally drawn to a church unless somebody who loves them takes them and invites them into it. Unless there's some crisis in their life, most people are not just going to walk into church. But there is this tendency during this time of the year, I think, and maybe some of you have experienced this, maybe some of you have felt this, during the Christmas season, there is this tendency for spiritual things. Like, we have this tendency to be like, okay, I'm a little more interested, and my interest is a little more peaked during the Christmas season than it is other times of the year, and so they have this peaked interest in spiritual matters, and so there's this great opportunity for, for you to invite someone to church with you over the next several weeks as we discuss how this boy changed the world. But you know, beyond this, 90% of people who began coming to church indicate that the reason that they became, uh, began coming to church was because they were invited into that context. 90% of new church attenders came because they were invited. And so my challenge to you is to pray about who you might invite to church over the next several weeks and then bring them along to this Christmas season or next week as we continue our discussion of why Jesus this morning and who is Jesus this morning. Here's the thing. If you were invited to church this morning, if it is your first time in a church building, then you were invited by somebody who loves you. And I, ho- I hope you recognize that, and I, and I hope you get that, that the reason they invited you into this context this morning is because they love you, and they want to share with you the central figure of their life. This isn't about religion, in other words. This isn't about some ritual or, or something that you have to start doing. There's, there's nothing that we're asking of you here. Instead, we want to love you and welcome you into a relationship, a relationship with a community of people, Yes, that also want to love you, and yes, that also want to care for you, but really, more importantly, a relationship with the Creator, a relationship with the person who made you, the person who loves you more and beyond anyone could love you. And so you may have retried religion, you know, uh, for, for a lot of us, we, we, we tried religion. We, we tried religion uh, growing up, and we learned that it didn't give us adequate answers to the questions that we had. Now, here's the thing, it didn't mean that those questions went away, though. 
Just because religion wasn't able to provide us adequate answers to the questions that we had, it didn't mean that the, the questions went away. We still wrestle with these. We still struggle with these. We still have the same questions. And so you're still searching and you believe, as does the friend that invited you here, if you were invited here, if you're just here because you love this community, whatever it may be, you are invited here that a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we understand and we believe that a relationship with Jesus Christ is the beginning to answering and fulfilling all of those deep-seated longings and answering all of those tough questions that you may have. And so we want to continue the conversations that we have here on Sunday morning. We want to uh, learn to continue them as we go forth. And so we're going to start providing you with uh, a review of the message each Sunday. We're going to start providing you with discussion questions as well. You can find those in the foyer in the back hallway. Each and every Sunday, you'll be able to pick this up. So as you're driving home, you can continue the conversation in your car ride. As you go to lunch, you can continue the conversation with those you are with. And so you can continue to learn exactly what Jesus is saying to you through the Sunday morning experience. You can find that again in the foyer, in the back hallway, a review of the message, and then also questions. And if you want to have a more intimate community of people who are learning to do this together, they're connecting regularly to do this, they're, they're caring for each other, and they're also growing in their relationship with God and with others, then we actually have community groups that come together regularly to discuss the week's sermon. To, to, to be in community with others, to care for each other, and then also to grow in the relationship with, the, with one another. So if you want to get into a community group, there's a box in your app that you can check off, or just let us know, and we'll get you plugged into a community group, and, uh, and you can get connected in more intimate ways. But here's the thing. I believe that most people's hesitation to faith is not intellectual. I believe that it is actually more of the fact that we are wrestling with shame and guilt and what forgiveness looks like lived out and played out on a day-to-day scale. I think that is really the key component that most of us are wrestling with, and that is the hesitation to faith. And so, my friends, that is next week's conversation. That is next week's conversation, so be sure to come back as we wrestle through finding hope and forgiveness and how Jesus can offer it, and he alone can offer it. But here's the thing. Thinking back to that Christmas series about how this boy changed the world— the only way people would have ever committed to following Jesus, and, and get this, the only way that anybody would have ever committed to actually following Jesus is if they would have believed what he said. The only way that people would have committed to changing their world is only if they would have believed that Jesus did what he said he did and claimed to be the person that he said he was. That's the only reason that people would commit to him. And so here's the thing. This, this, is a, this is a really lofty claim to think that Jesus could actually fulfill all of the things that he said he was going to fulfill because one of the most primary things that he said over and over again throughout his life was that he was going to die on a cross and at the end of his life he was then going to rise from the dead. This is one of the most central things that he said and he said it over and over and over again. And that was a really lofty claim. And if he said this, then if it wasn't true, then everything would have fallen apart. If it wasn't true, then everything would have been dismissed and everything he said would have been a lie. Everything that he did would have been a sham. Everything that he said would have been a lie and there's no reason to believe anything of what he said. There's no reason to believe anything of what he did if he had not actually done this very central claim of rising from the dead. And so when my eight-year-old son comes home from school and says his history teacher told him that miracles aren't real because science can't explain them, then Jesus and his resurrection, as well as creation, as opposed to evolution, right? They're just myths. They're just fables. They're just things we tell one another. Well, his history teacher is really just tapping into this Western mentality known as naturalism. It's the idea that 
everything can be explained by nature. And so the implication is that there's this dismissal of any divine influence. There is no divine influence. Everything can be explained by nature. That is naturalism. And here's the thing. If you've already predetermined that miracles don't exist, then whenever you are faced with something miraculous in your life, then you are just going to shove it off as coincidence. If you've already predetermined in your mind that miracles do not exist, then it doesn't matter what you experience in life, you're going to say, it's just coincidence. You're going to resist anything that comes into your mind that may even have the semblance of the miracle. And so in the case of the resurrection, you resist the claim that Jesus actually rose from the dead, and you're going to say, well, you know what? Those women who, who went to his tomb that first Sunday morning, well, you know what? They just had the wrong grave. <laughs> they were just confused, and they just actually went to the wrong tomb. Or you're going to say, you know what? I bet you Jesus' body was stolen. That's, that's what really happened. Yeah, yeah, he, he may have died, but the, there was this conspiracy to steal his body so that they would uh, m- make you believe that he had actually risen from the dead. Or, or, or you know what, but better yet, maybe he didn't actually ever die at all. Jesus didn't really die on the cross, and they laid him in the cool tomb, and the, and the cool, the fresh air, they, it, it, uh, it regurgitated him. Like it, it, uh, it, it gave him life again. Like, you know, it, it, it infused some life into his body. He was able to walk away from the tomb and, and convince people that he had actually risen from the dead. You're going to resist every miraculous sign and you're going to explain it away and you're going to try to find some way to convince yourself that he didn't actually rise from the dead. And you'll categorize the whole Jesus narrative as a myth. Well, you know, that doesn't really jive with what Jesus said. It doesn't jive with uh, the people who experienced Jesus rise from the dead. It doesn't jive with what, with what they wrote or what they believed. It doesn't jive with how the world was changed once this event actually happened in history. It doesn't certainly jive with what we tell our kids in our household. It doesn't jive with what our kids are learning downstairs in Restoration Kids. But you know what? <laughs> we can't all be right. We, we can't all be right. Either he did or he didn't. We can't all be right. And so it raises actually a lot of questions. Was Jesus even real? You know, how, how could someone rise from the dead? Or was he just a myth that we tell our children to make them feel better about life and death? Because you may have grown up in a faith system that gave you an, uh, answers to questions like these, and, and those answers, all of a sudden, they just don't make sense anymore. You, you may grow up in a, in a faith system that told you something as a child, and now that you're an adult, you're like, you're wrestling with it, and you're just, I just don't know. It doesn't make sense. All these things that I was told as a child, I'm, I'm now an adult and I have an adult thinking mind. Does it really make sense? When you were a child, it was easy to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but now my science teacher is telling me that those things don't happen, so what do I do? How do I reconcile that? Or you may believe that God answers prayer as a child, but you know what? He didn't answer your mom's prayer about your brother. Or you may believe that God is good and that he is for us, but then, you know, why is life so hard? Or you, you may believe that, that God punishes evil. But then you look around the world and you're like, there's no way God punishes evil because there's too much evil going celebrated in the world. There, there are too many evil, wicked people who are thriving. Or you may believe that God loves you. But then you wonder, why are you so depressed and why do you feel so alone? You see, our childhood faith doesn't make sense with our adult life so often. And so for a lot of people, they walk away from faith in Jesus Christ. And what frustrates me and burdens me so much is that the church, for the most part, has allowed a generation, and not just one generation, two, three, four generations to walk away from the faith. And they do this because the church has created a box. 
And it demands conformity to this box. And inside this box, there is no room for questioning, and there's no room for doubt, and there's certainly no room for science. And so when life happens, and, and the life we live, and the life we experience crashes against the principles of this box, then life wins, and guess what? The box loses. And doubt wins, and faith loses. And science wins, and Jesus loses. And so here's the thing. At Restoration Church, we want to abolish the box. We want to take the box, and we want to shatter the box, and we want to say we want to be a wrestling church. We want to be a church that, that looks at the, the challenges placed on, on us by our culture and, and, uh, and, and, and everything else, the science and doubt and everything, and we want to look at all of these big questions. We want to say, how can we wrestle them? How can we struggle with them? I'm not just going to say, get out of here. You, you, you believe in that thing? Get out of here. You have doubt? You have questions? Get out of here. You're not welcome here. That is certainly not the mentality that we want to hold here. We want to wrestle and we want to struggle through the doubts and the challenges that are presented to us by our culture. We want to abolish the box. And this doesn't mean that we don't have principles. It doesn't mean that we don't have convictions. But it means that we desire to be a wrestling church. We desire to be a, a church that struggles through faith and life, but that we keep Jesus as the central component of it all. And so this morning, where do we base our faith in Jesus? Where do we base our faith in Jesus as a historical person who actually did the things that he claimed to do? And so this morning, we're not even going to talk about Jesus as the giver of hope or the fulfillment of meaning and purpose. We're not going to talk about Jesus as the one who satisfies the deepest longings, the one who offers forgiveness, the one who gives us love. We're going to save all of those and reserve all of those for next week. I simply want to help us understand how and why we believe he was who he said he was and how he did the things that he claimed to do. And so first, there are, uh, there are a lot of accounts of Jesus um, outside the Bible that come from the first century. Second century, there's a lot of other people who spoke about Jesus and this movement. And so I want to direct you to a couple of them and give a little credence to this man named Jesus and what other people outside of the Christian faith believed and saw that he was doing. The first one I want to draw your attention to is this guy by the name of Tacitus. He was a Roman historian during the first century, and he said this regarding this great fire that broke out in Rome. He said, to suppress the rumor that Nero uh, had started the fire, that was the rumor, Nero falsely charged with the guilt, the punishment, the, and, I'm sorry, and punished Christians who were hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procreator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. But the pernicious superstition, and the pernicious superstition was that he had risen from the dead, that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so Tacitus is saying, there is this pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, it broke out again. Not only through Judea, which was 1,500 miles away, where this mischief originated, but here in the city of Rome. And I love how he describes Rome. I love how he describes Rome. He says, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Just he must, he must have loved his city, right? Uh, this is what he's saying. So there was this guy named Christus, and uh, there was this pernicious superstition that he had risen from the dead 1,500 miles from here, but it had somehow made its way to Rome. And now there was all these Christians in the city of Rome that Nero is blaming the fire on. Okay, that's really what Tacitus is trying to say. There's another guy by the name of Josephus. He was a Jewish historian during the first century, and he speaks even more convincingly about Jesus. He says this, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many Greeks. He was the Messiah. And when, upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, 
Those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. And so all this, and there are several others that I could have drawn your attention to, all of this tells us that there was a man named Jesus known as the Christ. He was the Messiah. A man named Jesus known as the Christ who performed incredible deeds in the first century, and it started this movement, and there was this pernicious superstition that started uh, about how he had miraculously risen from the dead and that the followers of him persist, and they still continue to persist even to this day. But here's the thing about all this, and including these extra-biblical accounts and including all the things that we learn of Jesus through Scripture, here's the thing about all this. We do not primarily believe in Jesus and his claim to have risen from the dead because historians tell us or because the Bible tells us so. That is not the primary reason that we believe that Jesus had risen from the dead because here's the thing. There were tens of thousands of people who believed that Jesus had risen from the dead long before the New Testament came into existence. There were tens of thousands of Christians who believed that Jesus had risen from the dead long before these historians ever wrote anything about Jesus the Messiah. In fact, people began believing that Jesus had risen from the dead the morning that Jesus rose from the dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, the people in the vicinity who had heard about this and were eyewitnesses to it, they did exactly what we would have done if we were to experience something so profound as this. How many of you guys, when you experience something really profound, you take to Facebook? You see this incredible thing happening in your community, you're like, hey, I've got to tell the world about this. Ah, you hop on Twitter, you hop on Instagram, you start taking pictures of it all. You start telling the world that this incredible thing happened, and that's exactly what the first century audience did. They didn't have Facebook, they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have Instagram, but they did their version of social media. They began to tell their friends. They began to tell their coworkers. They began to tell their neighbors. They began to tell their family members, hey, I cannot believe this incredible thing has happened. Jesus, this guy who we saw die on Friday night, has risen from the dead. I cannot believe it. I need to share it. I need to tell people about it. They did exactly what we would have done. They began to tell people about it. They began to write about it. And so we believe Jesus rose from the dead, not because the Bible tells us so, not because historians tell us so, but because thousands of people believe that Jesus had risen from the dead before there was a Bible, before the historians wrote about it. We believe Jesus rose from the dead because people began to talk about it. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they began to write about it. And other people who were eyewitnesses to them began to write about it. Because Paul, one who hated Christianity and hated this guy named Jesus and what he had done, he was converted miraculously and he said, I'm now going to begin to promote the very thing which I tried to destroy. And he started spreading the word across the entire Mediterranean world. And all these men and so many more believed that Jesus rose from the dead and they began to write about it. But there is this other guy, and we've already mentioned him, named Nero, who also believed in Christians, and he understood that the influence that Christian was having. Now, a lot of people don't know much about Nero. You probably don't know any of the laws that he put into place. You probably don't know the name of his parents. You don't know any of his wives or his children. You don't know anything that he was about except what maybe we've already told you, that there was a fire that broke out in the city of Rome. And he was the one who had started it, most likely, but he began to blame all of the Christians on it. And so as important as this is, there is more important question that I think is really interesting to digest and to wrestle with here. How could it be that Nero, 30 years after the resurrection, could blame Christians on starting the fire in Rome? How could it be that Nero could blame tens of thousands of Christians on starting the fire in Rome 30 years after the resurrection? 
So here's the thing. A lot of people have studied how myths are developed, right? My, my, my kid's third grade teacher is saying, hey, Jesus was just a myth. Okay, a lot of people have studied how myths are developed, how fables come into being, and, and all the studies are really fascinating. They say, they say that it takes anywhere from 60 to 80 years for a myth to develop. They say at the very, very least, it may develop 40 years, but it takes at least 40 years, if not longer, for a myth to develop. And the reason it takes so long for a myth to develop is because all of the eyewitnesses to that actual event have to have died. There can't be any eyewitnesses who actually saw the historical event take place left, and so they have to have died. So how could it be that Nero persecuted tens of thousands of Christians 30 years after the resurrection? Well, the answer is because there were thousands of Christians in Rome 30 years after the resurrection. And if there were thousands of Christians in Rome 30 years after the resurrection, then there were thousands of Christians in Rome 20 years after the resurrection. If there are thousands of Christians in Rome 20 years after the resurrection, there are at least hundreds, if not thousands, of Christians in Rome 10 years after the resurrection, and a myth could not develop in that short of time. Now, this isn't Bible. This is just history. This is just history. But Nero found tens of thousands of Christians to persecute in Rome 30 years after the resurrection. And the reason I say this is because in college or in third grade, for that matter, we're going uh, run, to run up against a lot of skeptical circles. We're going to run up against people who try and convince us that the story was fabricated and it was just a myth. And, and as it was written down and recopied again and again, it got deeper into legend and it was eventually included that Jesus rose from the dead. But people say, you know what? Science tells me that people don't rise from the dead. And so I can't believe that Jesus rose from the dead because I've never seen that happen. And science tells me that dead people stay dead, and so I'm not going to believe that people rise from the dead. But here's the thing. We don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead simply because the Bible tells us. We don't believe it simply because historians tell us it happened. The New Testament wouldn't even be compiled for 300 years. These historians didn't write until the middle of the second century, even though they lived during that time of Jesus. They didn't write for, for tens of uh, another 30, 40, 50 years after the resurrection. But there were thousands of people in Rome, that Nero could blame the fire on. There were thousands of Christians within 30 years of the resurrection, 1,500 miles away from where it began. 1,500 miles away from where it began, this word that Jesus had arisen from the dead not only spread, but convincingly spread where people were willing to commit their lives to it. And so we believe that Jesus rising from the dead did something so profound that it began to change the very course of history began to change the world in incredible and profound ways, and that those who saw it and experienced it, they began to write about it, they began to tell their neighbors, and they were changed by it. And so when Paul is writing to the Corinthians about the implications of the resurrection, look at how he begins. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. So this is, my, this is what it's all about, my friends. This is, this is the very focal point. This is what I want you to, to rest assured upon. First importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And so he was raised from the dead. And that he appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Some have died already, is what he's saying. Then he appeared to James, that's the brother of Jesus, and James didn't even believe in Jesus originally. He didn't believe he was the Messiah, the Son of God, but he was the brother of Jesus. He appeared to him also, then he appeared to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And so, my friends, you want to hear about the resurrection? Well, go talk to the 500 people who saw it. 
They're still living, by the way. You want their numbers? You want their addresses? Here you go. Go knock on their doors and ask them what they saw regarding Jesus, the Messiah. But the really fascinating thing about this, and I think this is so interesting, and it's, and it's, and it's, it's really profound, and I hope you think it's profound as well, but all of these people that are mentioned here, the, the 12 disciples, the 500 people, Paul, all of these people, none of them believed that Jesus was the Messiah Friday night. Every single one of them had, had abandoned and disowned Jesus come Friday night. Sure, John was there to watch Jesus be crucified, but come Saturday morning, there were no more followers of Jesus. Nobody believed that Jesus was the Messiah come Saturday morning after the crucifixion. Everybody abandoned him. They gave up believing their Messiah was from God, and now they believed that he was just another false Messiah, just in line with all the other false messiahs that had come before him. They were passionate followers of Jesus until Jesus died. And then they ditched him, and then they abandoned him because a dead Messiah is no Messiah at all. And so they scattered. The disciples scattered. They hid away in locked rooms. They ran for their lives in fear that they were next. And so now what would compel these same people, right? Think about how they just scattered. They, they followed Jesus the Messiah. They watched him die. They run for their lives thinking that they're next. They, they disown Jesus. They abandon their faith in Jesus. What would convince these same people come Sunday morning to recommit their lives? What would, commit them, what would convince them to recommit their lives to now following this guy whom they had believed was dead? What would compel someone who, sought after, who was sought after being chased by authorities because of their association with Jesus, being full of fear and cowardice while running and hiding and protecting oneself to make a 180-degree turn to now begin to preach the very message which they knew was going to lead to their death? Think about it. What would it take for you? What would it take for you or any person to have lost all hope and all faith in the direction of their life one moment and then upon waking up one morning and experience something begin to change the very direction of your life that was ultimately going to lead to a horrible, horrible death that you are now willing to die for? What conspiracy would have convinced not only the disciples but also an additional 500 people to allow their very lives to be taken in such a horrible fashion? What conspiracy would do that? Wouldn't these men just have denied that, that Jesus was real? I mean, I mean, it's easy. It's okay. I mean, they got together and said, hey, we're going to create this conspiracy to, to create this rumor that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. Okay, well, you know, when that nail is about to go through your wrist as you're being crucified for this lie that you're telling, wouldn't you have said, okay, okay, guys, all right, yeah. Okay, we, we got together. We're, we're trying to make up this conspiracy. But you know what? I really don't want that nail to go through me. I don't want to be hanging here for the next five days as I suffocate and bleed to death. And so, guys, okay, I, I was lying. He didn't actually rise from the dead. It was just a joke, okay? We, we get it. Or when, you're, when your head is against the chopping block and you see the sun glinting off that axe above you, you're like, okay, 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 this is real. I get it, okay? You, you, can, you can stop. You don't, need to, you don't need to cut my head off today, okay? I, I get it. It was, it was just a joke. It wasn't real. He didn't actually rise from the dead. What would convince you to die for this? What would convince you to give up your life in such a horrible and brutal fashion Having denied him Friday night, having abandoned him on Saturday, what would have convinced you Sunday morning that this was all real? Because Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Thomas was gutted by a lance. James, the brother of Jesus, was thrown off a temple mount. He was stoned within an inch of his life, and then for good show, he had his head beaten in with a, with a club. Everyone else except John was crucified, and 
And John had to escape being dragged by his feet behind chariots and tossed into boiling oil before authorities just gave up and excommunicated him to the island of Patmos. Several thousands of Christians died in Nero's circus. This is the arena that he had built and established for his games. Thousands of Christians died because they were, they were dressed in dog's fur and soaked in blood and unleashed to the wolves and to the lions. Hundreds of Christians died because he wanted to keep his games going into the night and so he doused these Christians in oil and lit them on fire so that they would torch up the sky so that they could continue to play their games into the night. All of these men and women, every single one of them could have simply escaped death if they would have said, hey, you know what? This didn't actually happen. You know what? This didn't actually take place. It was all a farce. It was all a lie. If they would have just abandoned faith in Jesus, kissed the image of the Caesar, they could have lived, but none of them did. None of them did it. And so what would compel someone to completely change their mind, having seen Jesus die on Friday, run in fear for their lives on Saturday, but be willing to die on Sunday? What would convince someone to change their mind? What convinced them to do this? What would convince Paul to stop persecuting the church and begin to preach the very message which he was trying to eliminate? What would change in his mind? What would convince him to do this? What would convince someone to do such radical things? Now here's the thing. People are willing to die for all sorts of things. People are willing to all die for, for all sorts of things. People strap bombs to themselves and they're willing to die for their causes, unfortunately, all the time in our world. But please understand how important this is, that the Christians who died for the sake of Jesus, who laid down their lives because of Jesus and what they knew to be true, did not do it for themselves. And so Jesus' followers, they don't die for themselves. We die for others. But the jihadist who straps a bomb to themselves and walks into a building and blows up a building and they die in the process, they are doing it absolutely for themselves. They believe that in doing that, they are going to receive a huge harem of women upon their death as they enter into glory. That heaven for them is going to be one incredible party, and if they are willing to, to, to kill the Western world in order to do that as they die themselves, then it's going to be that much better. The party is going to be that much more extravagant. But what selfish motive did the first century followers of Jesus have to compel them to lay down their lives? They had no selfish motive in doing it, other than the fact that simply Jesus had already risen from the dead. The truth of this event caused them to lay down their lives. They saw what had happened, and it convinced them to do radical, radical things. Experience does this to us. Experience does this to us. They saw the real risen Messiah, and it changed them. They saw Jesus die. They took their lifeless body away, and they carried it to a tomb, and they laid it down, and they rolled that tomb over it, and they put him to rest, and then two days later, he appears to 500 people. He appears to 500 people, and he appears in the flesh. This wasn't just some apparition, right? This wasn't just some spirit. He appeared to them in the flesh as the risen, victorious Lord. He wasn't stumbling towards them. He didn't have a limp. He, he, he didn't approach them as someone who had just been beaten to an inch of his life and then nailed to a cross for six hours and then risen, rested in a tomb for three days. He didn't approach them as some sickly Messiah or some sickly king. He appeared to them as the risen, physical, victorious Lord. Convincingly, he appeared to them. They had experienced the risen, victorious Lord and it changed everything that they knew and it inspired in them this desire to change the world. And so we believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the ones who experienced it were changed so radically by it. 
And here's the thing, friends. We sit here as a church because this event in history happened. There's no point for us to be here this morning if this didn't happen. There's no point for us to dedicate our lives to this man if this did not happen. I'm going to invite the band forward, and we're going to reflect on this for just a few more minutes as we sing one final song together. And so here's the thing. We, we sit here this morning because of this. But our lives have been changed because of this. And so when we fully understand the resurrection and we take seriously the death of Jesus on our behalf, it creates a context for our lives that impacts every single element and facet of our lives. And so it impacts the way that we spend our time. It impacts the way that we spend our money. It impacts the people that we hang out with and the relationships that we have and what we hope that those relationships are going to be about. It impacts the way that we love one another. It impacts the way that we mourn. It impacts the very life that we live. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the lens by which we see everything and the lens by which we see everything clearly. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's, it's meaningless. It's pointless. You are still in your sins. There is no hope for you. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost too. Those who have died already, they're, they're lost. They're just going to decay in the grave forever. There is no hope for them either. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all People, we of all people are most to be pitied. And so here's just a little preview of next week as we conclude this morning's service and we think about what's taking place next week. If Jesus didn't die, my friends, everything is meaningless. Everything that we do here at Restoration Church, everything we do in our individual lives as Christ followers is meaningless. We are still in our sin and we're still dead in that sin. You know, hope is this nice idea and it's something that, you know, in our current, current climate as American people, we desperately long for a brighter future. It's a nice idea. It's a secure future. It's a great idea, but it's, it's, it's not real. There's nothing of substance to it. Forgiveness, this, this thing that we all long for because we all recognize that we are guilt, guilty and, and, and full of shame and that we all have this need to be forgiven and we all long to forgive other people who have longed us. It's a nice idea. It's a really nice idea and we all long for it, but there's no power to it. There's no power for it to be real or to be, for it to, to actually happen. Mercy is something that we all long for because we all recognize that we are broken and sinful. But without the resurrection, my friends, guilt and fear will always win. Grace seems like this beautiful, beautiful thing that we all desire. But without the resurrection, it's just imaginary. And so we desire relief from our shame and our guilt that haunt us. We want a hope that won't disappoint or fade with, cha- with the changing circumstances. We all have these longings and desires that can't seem to be met by any physical acquisition. And so we look to sex, and we look to power, and we look to more money, and we think, hey, these things will fulfill me. These things will satisfy the longings in my heart. Maybe if I just drink enough, then the guilt will go away. Maybe if I just have enough money, then I can just forget all the woes in life. But where can they be filled? Or maybe, I don't know, maybe Buddha can do it. Maybe Allah has an answer. We're going to wrestle through all of these and much more next week as we continue our conversation on this. But this week, I want you to walk away with this. We base our faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because those who experienced it died to advance it. And more importantly, it provides us a lens to see all of life clearly. And so our, our souls are a wreck. Yeah, I don't know if you guys' souls are wrecks. I don't know if you uh, experience that like I do, but I experience my soul just being a wreck sometimes. And, and these longings and these hopes and these desires for justice and the mourning and the grieving that I do, it all remains unsatisfied without the resurrection. And so, so for many of you guys, it begins with a choice. 
You know, that's, that's what's so fascinating about the Christian faith and, and the choice that we make is that it is a choice to make. And if this morning you just say, you know what, I'm going to choose to believe. I'm, I'm going I'm to choose to believe that Jesus was who he said he was and that he did the things that he claimed to do. I'm going to choose to believe this. And, and what's so interesting about belief in Scripture, guys, it's not in your mind. That's not really where belief originates in Scripture. It's not this thing that's like, oh, well, I've got to get all the historical facts together. Uh, you know, I, I got to be able to cross all the T's and dot all the I's, and I got to be convinced in my mind that all these things happen. That's not what belief is. Belief is about the heart. It's about this deep-seated longing inside of you and this, and this guilt that you have or this burden that you experience, the weightiness that we all feel from time to time. And if you choose to believe, as we're in the series on choices, if you choose to believe, that there is a God who loves you and that he has done the unimaginable and the unthinkable and he has gone to the very greatest extent to bring you back to himself, then my friends, today, you will experience the resurrected life of Jesus. But it is a choice to believe. And so let's sing the song together as we declare that belief. And if you're not at that point, that's okay. We're glad you're here. If you're still wrestling, man, yeah, that's exciting. We would love to be a wrestling church. We're a struggling church. If you're at that point where you're not at that point to believe, then here's my, here's my challenge to you as we sing this final song, to pray. To, to pray God and be open to say, God, I, or I, you know, I don't even know what I'm praying to. I don't even know who this God is. But I'm going to pray and I'm going to say these words from the depth of my heart because that's where belief originates. I'm going to say these words and I'm going to speak these words and I'm going to cry these words and I'm going to say, God... Would you reveal yourself to me? I, I want to believe. I, I, I want the longings in my heart to be fulfilled. I, I experience the guilt and the need for forgiveness, but I just don't know where to get it. So God, wherever you are and whoever you are, would you reveal yourself to me? I want to make a choice, Father, to believe that you love me. I want to make a choice to believe that you have done the unimaginable and you have sent your son to die and to rise from the dead so that the longings in my heart could be fulfilled and and the need for forgiveness could be found. I'm going to choose to believe.